In our text tonight, Matthew is trying to show us just how bad things are among God's people at this point in the story. So as we look at that, we might ask, how bad are they? Well, we can start with the obvious. The first thing that we see is that when the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, when Yahweh himself comes to his people, the first thing that their ruler tries to do is to kill him. Herod, the appointed but illegitimate king of God's people at this time, will have no challengers, not even from God himself. And so when Yahweh comes to his people, the first act of the ruler of God's people is to try to kill him. The second thing that we see is the widespread cruelty with which Israel's ruler is willing to attack God's anointed. He casts a wide net. He does not bother to work on figuring out exactly which boy might be the promised Messiah, but he orders that all the baby boys within a safe two-year range, and not only those in Bethlehem, but in the whole region around it, be killed. This was actually not an unusual act of cruelty for Herod. He had ordered the execution of many people, including his own family members. Compared to his other acts of cruelty, the slaughter of what most commentators estimate would probably have been around 20 or so infants, would have been a minor act of his, which is probably why no other historians make note of it. It was a typical event under the reign of Herod. But of course, we also know that it was not a typical event in the lives of those families whose babies were mercilessly slaughtered. They would not need anyone to explain to them how bad things were among God's people. In the midst of their grief, they knew. Those are the obvious ways that we see that things were bad among God's people. But Matthew is also making a point to show us that the problems we see here are much broader than these particular events. That this was by no means an isolated incident. And Matthew does this by drawing parallels to two other periods of Israel's history. The first may be a bit more obvious to us. Here in this text, we have a story of a tyrannical king who's slaughtering infant boys of Israel, and in the process, he's threatening the would-be deliverer of God's people. Where have we seen this before? We've, of course, seen it in the Exodus. There, it was Pharaoh who ordered the slaughter, and it was Moses who narrowly escaped. But that parallel that Matthew is drawing our attention to should also give us pause. In the Exodus story, God's people were slaves in a foreign land whose rulers were oppressing them. But now a new Pharaoh sits on the throne in Jerusalem, oppressing and abusing God's people even as they live in the promised land. Things are not good among God's people. This parallel to Pharaoh in Egypt emerges with, Pharaoh's, with, I'm sorry, with Herod's slaughter of the infants in verse 17, but it's reinforced in other ways as well. We see it in verse 20, when the angel calls Joseph to return to Israel by saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. It's easy to miss, but this line verbally parallels Exodus 4.19 the scene in the book of Exodus where the angel instructs Moses to go back to Egypt because those who sought his life were dead. Again, Matthew points us to a parallel, not just between Jesus and Moses, 
but also between Herod and Pharaoh. But the comparison goes even wider, I think, in verse 15, when Matthew cites Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. What is Matthew getting at here? Well, the first thing we need to note about this citation that Matthew gives is that it's highly unlikely uh, that Matthew was arguing that when Hosea wrote this verse down, he had the Messiah's flight to Egypt in mind. In its original context, it seems fairly clear that Hosea is talking about the Exodus, when God brought Israel, his son, out of Egypt. But Matthew here applies it to the flight of Jesus from Israel and to Egypt. What is Matthew getting at? Well, he's getting at a few things, I think, but I want to focus on one of those in particular. Among other things, Matthew is making a point, once again, about what is going on in Israel at this moment in history. In verses 13 through 15, Matthew gives the account of Jesus' flight from Israel and to Egypt. And then at the end of it, he says, it fulfilled the pattern of Hosea 11.1, which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem to really fit. Why say that Jesus has fulfilled the pattern of fleeing out of Egypt at the point in the narration when he's actually fleeing to Egypt? There seem to be two, two possible interpretations of this. One, which many commentators go with, is that in this section of the text, Matthew is structuring each paragraph the same way. He's giving a piece of narrative, and he's giving a piece of prophecy that has been fulfilled. And since he doesn't really have a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah, leaving Israel and going to Egypt, he jumps ahead a bit here, and he's alluding to Jesus' inevitable departure from Egypt. And so that's one possibility. But another possibility, and one that I think is more plausible, is that Matthew is saying that Jesus' flight from Israel parallels Israel's flight from Egypt in the book of Exodus. In other words, when Matthew quotes Hosea here, we are meant to see that what one commentator calls ironic quotation marks around the word Egypt. Matthew is not drawing our attention to Jesus' flight from literal Egypt, but from spiritual Egypt. And that spiritual Egypt is Herod's Israel. Matthew is saying that Israel itself is now like Egypt was back before the Exodus. Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that Egypt, literal Egypt, is now, at this time, a safer and friendlier place for Israel's Messiah than Israel itself is. Such is the state of God's people in our text. But Matthew gives us one more Old Testament allusion in this passage to explain the state of where things are. And we get it in verse 18. The quote that's there about Rachel weeping for her children, which is applied to the people of Bethlehem weeping for their lost infant sons. Now, I think it could be kind of tempting to read this quickly and to uh, sort of read it as if Matthew knew that people were sad and so he just sort of plugged in an Old Testament verse about mothers crying for lost children because it, it seemed to fit. But Matthew's actually doing a lot more than that here. This verse that Matthew quotes is from Jeremiah 31.15. And its immediate context is speaking about the exile of God's people from the Promised Land. It is describing one of the particular low points 
in the history of God's people. When, because of their unfaithfulness, they were expelled from the land that God had given to them. That was, of course, a devastating time for God's people. And Jeremiah uses the figure of Rachel weeping for the children of Judah because they were exiled, and therefore they were no more. In other words, in our text tonight, Matthew is saying that God's people are, in a sense, being exiled even while they live in the land. But where the Babylonians were exiling them to a foreign land, Herod is now exiling them to death. Israel is experiencing oppression that is not unlike that of the exile long ago. So we can bring all of those together and see how pointedly Matthew is directing our attention. Things are so bad in Israel that those who lead them are trying to kill Israel's Messiah. They're so bad in Israel that those who should be protecting and shepherding God's people are instead slaughtering its young in order to protect their own power. Things are so bad in Israel that Egypt is a safer place for the servants of Israel's God than Israel is. Things are so bad in Israel that the conquering Babylonians treated them to a more merciful exile than their current ruler does. Things are bad, and God's people are suffering. And so, we would imagine they are led to ask, when God's people suffer, how can God remain silent? Matthew, in this text, I think, gives us two answers to that question. In response to the anguish of God's people as they suffer, in response to the questions that must rise in their hearts of why God is silent towards them, Matthew has two answers in this infancy narrative. Let's look at them one at a time. The first thing that Matthew has to say to our question is that we must not mistake silence for absence. We must not mistake silence for absence. In other words, just because the heavens do not open and we do not hear words spoken from on high, this does not mean that God is absent. In fact, that is one of the central points of this text. Matthew is showing us here that just as things seem at their worst, just as God's people seem to be most cut off from him, it is then that he is closer to them than ever before. That is what our God is like, we are told here. He does not withdraw when his people suffer, but he draws even closer. And he writes, summarizes that reality in this text like this. After describing the brutality of Herod and considering the position that this put God's people in, he writes, The gospel of Jesus the Messiah was born then in a land and at a time of trouble, tension, violence, and fear. Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. This is how Israel's Redeemer was to appear. This is how God would set about liberating his people and bringing justice to the whole world. No point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. That is what this chapter of Matthew's Gospel is about. What Wright is drawing our attention to 
is that it was this moment when things seemed particularly bad that Christ chose to enter the world and join his people in their suffering. And as we recognize that, we need to be careful not to misunderstand Christ's flight from the slaughter in Bethlehem. Taken in isolation, it might look like Jesus was running off, or rather being led off in his case, to let others bear the brunt of the suffering when Herod's soldiers arrived in Bethlehem. But we need to remember what Jesus was being preserved for. Jesus did not avoid the slaughter in Bethlehem so that he could instead enjoy comfort and peace. No, Christ dodged the swift sword of Herod's soldiers as an infant so that he might instead endure the torture and agony of the cross as a man. He dodged the feeble wrath of Herod as an infant so that as a man he might take on to himself the powerful wrath of a holy God against the sins of this world. Jesus is not avoiding suffering in order to grasp at safety here. He's actually avoiding a lesser suffering so that he might one day take on a greater one. And so the infant Jesus is brought by his faithful parents to Egypt. We don't know exactly where in Egypt they settled, but commentator Leon Morris notes that many Jews had fled at this time to Egypt for refuge, so that there was a considerable Jewish minority in the land at that time. And so Jesus, the Son of God, was among them. I wonder, do you think that such an idea would ever have occurred to any of the other Jewish refugees in Egypt at that time? As they lived their lives having had to flee from their own country because of its brutal apostate leadership, as they felt alone and isolated, as they mourned their disconnection from their God, do you think that any of them would have ever imagined that the Messiah, that Yahweh himself in the flesh, was living in their own town or city? That in some cases he was living down the street from them? That probably in at least a couple of cases he was their next door neighbor? And yet he was. God was close to his people when they might have least expected it. And he was not only close, but he was sharing in their condition, sharing in their status, sharing in their flight, and all this before he was old enough to say a word. And as unique as that time would have been when Christ was physically present with them, he also promises that the same is true for us today. He says that he will never leave nor forsake us, his people. He says that he is always with us by his Spirit. That is what we heard and considered this morning. Part of what I want to ask tonight is, do you think about that when suffering comes to you or to those around you or to God's people somewhere else, even on the other side of the globe? Do you consider that by his Spirit, God is in the room when disaster strikes. And he remains there while his people grieve what has happened to them. Do you imagine him there just as truly, even if not visibly, as he was with those Jewish refugees in Egypt? Do you recognize that God is there with his people when they suffer? Or do you act as if 
or we might even say pretend as if, he is absent. And if you imagine him there, if you do practice the presence of God in those moments, how do you imagine that he feels when his people suffer or are oppressed? It might feel like an odd question, but the Psalms do not hesitate to describe how God feels when he sees evil, especially when he sees evil brought upon his people. Psalm 7, verse 11, it tells us that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God feels indignation at the evil that goes on in his world. More than that, we are, of course, told that God identifies with the plight of his people. We see it here in this text. We're reminded of it again in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, when Jesus appears to Saul, who had been persecuting the people of God, and Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Jesus' people are persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. He stands that closely to his people as they suffer. So when you consider God being present with you in your suffering, do you think of him as the Bible does? Does he care? Is he indignant when evil is done? Does he share in the suffering of his people? We cannot read the Bible and come to the conclusion that God is detached from the suffering of his people, that he is indifferent. Instead, what we find is that he is present and he suffers with them, most especially through the life and death of Christ. Thinking about this actually turns some of our typical questions about God and human suffering around a bit. Oddly enough, this was captured well by Peter Travers' review of silence in Rolling Stone, when he said that the real mystery that we must wrestle with right now in the, the life that we face in the world as it is, is the idea of a God who chooses to suffer with mankind instead of ending its suffering. As Tim Keller points out, God does not just allow or ordain suffering for others, but in Christ he takes it on to himself. And so whatever else we might say about suffering in this world, we must acknowledge that God really does think that it's worth it. Because in Christ he has subjected himself to it right alongside his people. So the first thing that Matthew points out to us is that we must not confuse silence with absence. God is with us when we suffer. And he cares deeply. And that brings us to the second thing Matthew has to say to us, which is that when we suffer, God is not actually silent. He's not silent. Well, what do I mean by that? Matthew here is repeatedly referring to the Hebrew scriptures to explain what is going on in Israel at the time of Jesus' infancy. Three times he identifies something as fulfilled prophecy, and at least twice he alludes to Old Testament events. But what's interesting is that with maybe the possible exception of one of those texts, none of the other ones, none of the other allusions that are there seem in the original context to be prophecies. They're all just accounts of Israel's past a summary of Israel's flights from Egypt, the story of Pharaoh's slaughter of the infant male, 
the call of Moses to return to Egypt, the poetic lament of the departing youth during the exile of Judah. But Matthew applies them all here, not only to Jesus, but to Israel's struggles centuries after the events described in the Old Testament occurred. Why does he do that? What we see is that Matthew seems to have a deep sense that the scriptures, that the inspired accounts of the history of God's people, tell him not only what God has done in the past, but how God still works today. In other words, for Matthew, the stories of scripture are not just remote accounts of what happened once long ago, but they are chapters in a story that is ongoing, and a story that he is now a part of. And those around him are now a part of. And a story where themes and patterns often get repeated and where the central character of it all, where God, Yahweh, remains the same. To put it more directly, Matthew sees that the story of God's people in the Exodus or in the exile, that those things are the story of God's people under Herod as well. The past accounts speak to the current moment. Now, it's important that we acknowledge how this is working for Matthew. Matthew doesn't see the scriptures speaking to his particular moment by ripping them out of their original context and jamming them into his own. It's actually the opposite. He sees them speaking to his particular moment not by making them fit to what is going on in his life, but by realizing that he and that all of those around him fit into the story told by the scriptures. And realizing that means that there are two ways that God speaks into our suffering through his word. The first is that we realize that our suffering and our struggles are not new. Our suffering and our struggles are not new. And realizing that does not dismiss or discount our suffering, but in a way it actually validates them. Left to ourselves... When things go badly, it is easy for us to feel as if our moment is unique. To feel as if we alone, or maybe our culture alone, or the church in our day alone, that we are facing hardships that have not been faced before. But realizing how the scriptures speak to us of the past struggles of God's people reminds us that we are not alone in our struggles. And so when you face suffering, do you turn to the scriptures? And not just to the happy parts of the scriptures, although that's good as well, but do you turn to the accounts of struggle? Do you read the stories of how God's people have suffered in the past and realize that you are not alone? Do you look to how they handled hardship and find inspiration? Do you turn to the laments of the Bible? And take them on your own lips and speak those words to God. Lament is the most common genre of psalms that we have in the Psalter. But when you suffer, do you allow yourself to lament to God? Thousands of years ago, God's people did. They even did it together in worship as they sang those psalms of lament together. And God has given their words to you in the scriptures so that in your suffering, you could take them on your lips and speak them to him. Do you turn to that gift and make use of it when suffering comes? 
God is not silent when we suffer. The question is whether we will listen to what he provides for us. So first, Matthew shows us here that God speaks to us in our suffering through his word to assure us that we are not alone in this suffering, to give us models and words to understand better what we are going through. But second, God also speaks through his word to assure us that our suffering is not the end of the story. What we need to notice in Matthew chapter 2 is that in every one of those allusions that Matthew gives us, the suffering of God's people is real, it is significant, but it's also not the end of their story. Yes, the suffering of Israel was real in Egypt, but their oppression was followed by the deliverance of Yahweh. Yahweh, working through Moses, would bring Egypt to its knees. Without raising a sword, the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians. Yahweh would lead his people out, and he would cast the pursuing army of Egypt into the sea. Oppression was followed by liberation and victory. Yes, the exile was devastating for Judah. They were carried off into a foreign land. They suffered and they were persecuted. But just as Jeremiah expressed the anguish of the exile, so he also, in the same chapter, delivered the promise that God's people would return to the land. And so they did. God, working through providence, through Jewish leaders and pagan rulers, brought his people back to the land that he had promised them. Exile was was followed by return and resettlement. Matthew alludes to these stories as he describes the suffering of God's people under Herod because he knows that in the same way, neither Herod's reign nor the reign of his successors would be the last word for God's people. God was once again sending a deliverer. And it's worth noting that that deliverer would deliver his people both temporally and eternally. Of course, most importantly, centrally, Christ delivered them eternally. He saved his people from sin and death. He died the death they deserved on the cross. He took upon himself the wrath of God that their sin had merited. And he purchased salvation for all who would call on him, all who would be united to him by faith. Christ truly delivered his people in the most important way. That is the most significant deliverance that he brings. But it's also not the only deliverance that he would bring them. To be sure, our eternal salvation and Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil are the foundation of all the other deliverances that he brings us. But Christ's deliverance is not limited to the next life. It flows back into this life as well, though we often don't know how it will come. And so Christ also delivered his people temporally. One generation... About 40 years after the rejection of him, one generation from the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, one generation from Israel's decisive rejection of their king, Christ, as he promised in Matthew 24, brought judgment on the evil leadership and the apostate remnant of Israel. In 70 AD, Christ brought down what remained of the Israel that more closely resembled in Egypt. And thus, he, in that season, delivered his faithful followers from persecution from first century Jews. Just like the Exodus, 
And just like in the exile, the suffering of God's people was not the end of the story. When God is at work among his people, death is followed by resurrection. Always in the next life, but often in this life as well. Now, we cannot know on an individual basis what God will bring of our sufferings in this life. We cannot know if deliverance of one form or another will come in this life, or if we, as many Christians in the past, must wait for the life that is to come. But we do know two things about God's work now. The first thing we know is that in history, God will maintain his mission and he will protect his people. The gates of hell will not prevail against them. Michael Green, reflecting on this text, puts it like this. He says, opposition is inevitable, but it will never, in the providence of God, be allowed to quench God's mission. There was every possibility of quenching the Messiah. His mother Mary might have been stoned as an adulteress. He might have been killed by Herod. He might have been lost in Egypt. But no, God's hand was upon him. Opposition could not extinguish God's light. What an encouragement that would have been to Matthew's readers. The church, so frail, so exposed, would not be allowed to sink, however threatening the storms and waves that broke over it. But along with that, we know that no matter what happens in this life, for every one of God's people, deliverance will come at the return of Christ, when God will make all things new and wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. God speaks to us through his word and reminds us of that. He tells us in his word over and over again, in story and promise and song. So do we enter his word that way? You know, many of us have a movie or a show or something like that that we like so much that things in our lives seem to regularly make us think of it. If that doesn't describe you, it probably describes someone that you know. And so a line that someone speaks or a situation that we find ourselves in that resembles a scene from that movie or that show leads us to immediately blurt out a quote from the story that goes along with it. In an imaginative way, we are quick to see moments in our own lives as being a part of that story that we love. One of the challenges that this text brings to us is the question of what if we immerse ourselves in the same way in the Word of God? What if we knew it well enough that when a situation in our life resembled a moment that God's God's people experienced in His Word, then the corresponding line of Scripture would just pop into our heads like the quote from a movie. What if just as easily as we connected a moment from our lives to a line of dialogue from The Princess Bride or Parks and Recreation, what if in the same way we were able to connect a moment of our lives to a scene in Scripture? That seems to be almost what is happening to Matthew here. If we absorb the Scripture to such an extent It would transform how we view our lives and how we view the suffering of God's people. And we would not know, excuse me, and we would know that when God's people suffer, God, in fact, is not silent. But, of course, the question is, do we attend to God's word that way? And if not, should that be motivation for us to make it more of a priority in the year ahead? 
not just to accrue more knowledge, but so that it might transform the way that we view our own lives. In Shisaku Endo's novel Silence, after witnessing the brutal martyrdom of two Christians, Father Rodriguez cannot shake, he says, the feeling that while men raise their voices in anguish, God remains with folded arms, silent. It's an understandable feeling, one that some of us may struggle with. But when Matthew sees the slaying of many boys at the hand of Herod, he sees something different. He sees a God who in that very moment, in the person of Christ, is more present than ever before. A God who has not excluded himself from the pain of his people, but who has come to face it alongside them in Christ. He sees a God who is present and who cares. But not only that, he sees a God who even in the midst of our most terrible suffering is speaking words of comfort and hope to his people. To the very words and the stories of the scriptures that tell of the past sufferings and past deliverances of his people. And so our God is with us. And our God speaks. May he give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Amen.